Welcome to another episode of the New York Information Security Meetup. And I have the great pleasure to introduce Eric Olson, who's Director for Cybersecurity at JetBlue. Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Much appreciated. How are you? I'm great. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you um, because I intimately know, um, you know what you've done so far and your capabilities in this space. So before we get started, um, maybe uh, run me through like uh, your background in terms of how you got started in cybersecurity. You have a really interesting personal story around that. You were an entrepreneur joining a company and then you join into another company and then you end up uh, with more and more responsibilities as time, as, as time went by. Well, I think like a lot of people, uh, at least <laughs> those of us in the, uh, let's say, older age bracket uh, with regard to cyber, it's a relatively young field, but uh, I guess I'm an old dog in it. Uh, like many people in that first generation, I sort of tripped over the curb and landed in a pile of cyber by accident. Uh, I was uh, your typical MBA bean counter weenie, and I was working at a management consulting gig like so many of my classmates and I was uh, bored to death so <laughs> a colleague of mine said that her husband was working at what they used to call a dot com because that you know <laughs> told you everything you needed to know uh, dot com startup down the street and they were looking for people who could speak business because they were a bunch of nerds going to fortune 500 companies saying uh, ones and zeros and the client said dollars and cents and they needed someone to translate. So um, I, uh, I looked at my career path and said in 20 years, you know, the consulting firm will let me talk to SVPs at a Fortune 50 client or I can walk down the block and, you know, they need me to do it tomorrow. And I was, I don't know, 28 and full of confidence in myself. So I, uh, I jumped, took a huge pay cut. And what started as online brand and trademark protection because the web presented a host of issues that no one had had to deal with before, like you can download and you know right click and download intellectual property uh, in about two seconds and they didn't know how to deal with that. But what we found was that uh, if you look for things like brands and trademarks for major companies on the web, what you discovered was everything from fake login pages, which didn't even have the, the title or the name phishing yet then, uh, to counterfeit and stolen goods, to um, physical threats from people on, if you remember PHP bulletin boards, from people who've you know, been laid off. So uh, we realized very quickly that there was far more value in searching for brands and seeing what else was going on on the web than just reporting the brand infringements. That's when we pivoted into online security monitoring and to some degree blazed the trail uh, of what became the open source Intel and social media monitoring, dark web monitoring industries. And, and what's amazing about it, you have the intimate knowledge and experience to, uh, to kind of ride that journey because back in the day, um, you, you know, things were evolving so quickly, right? There were websites that's just popping like you know, mushrooms after the rain and the, you know, it was like the big bang of internet, right? <laughs> the, the explosion of of of, uh, of data, explosion of websites and so on. And it reminds me of almost like we were, you know, we were going, you know, 60 miles an hour without without having seatbelts in the car, you know, just like the old days of, of, of uh, motor vehicles. Um, and you experienced that hands-on 
And so um, what was the kind of the early days when you were starting to work with these companies? Um, I'm assuming that a lot of it came, came about from uh, necessity, right? So uh, companies came to you as part of working with a startup saying, we have a problem. What kind of the were the kind of the problems you mentioned in the early days uh, around uh, you know brand infringement and, and some security associated with uh, with website, and, and and again if you look at the history of, of of internet it was supposed to be this benign information sharing you know place with with trust being is kind of like the <laughs> and you're laughing so anyway I'll let you I'll let you take over. Well, um, the. Uh the first thing is that, as I mentioned, what began looking at brand and trademark issues surfaced all kinds of security problems that were evident because you were searching for the brand. And when, so the evolution in those early days, as you mentioned, uh, was partly just the proliferation of sources as well as business issues. Um, the mushrooms after a rain, as you put it, we not only dealt with the explosion in what I guess would now be considered web one, right? Uh, unidirectional from, from the website owner out to the public, very primitive. Um, that initial set of problems was twofold for us as a dot-com startup trying to survive, right? What you had was a source universe, a collection management problem that was going up by orders of magnitude per year, not hyperbole, right? By decimal places a year. Um, while labor and investment capital were relatively constant at best. Uh, that was the era of reductions and, you know, uh, uh, startups trying to get through the 2000 bust and survive. So we had to grow orders of magnitude in terms of collection and data processing and intelligent uh, use of information to produce valuable and viable output that customers would pay for as uh, the collection universe went up by decimal places per year, while the analyst and capital pools did not. Uh, on the customer side, the problems that proliferated as web one became web two, if you will, the more interactive and then of course when commerce was added on a widespread basis. You had all sorts of new problems that were layered on uh, identity theft, phishing of consumers, phishing of employees, wire uh, business e email compromises, they call it now BEC, you had wire and invoice fraud against the companies. You had a whole host of online threats or online indications and warnings for offline threats, what would now be called physical security monitoring for cyberspace. Um, you had distribution issues because if you could now conduct transactions and sell on the web, then everything from stolen goods to counterfeit goods became extremely widespread and profitable. So both the, the amount of data that had to be processed and the business problems that had to be solved uh, were proliferating quickly. This is all in the generation before what we would now call cyber threat intelligence as opposed to OSINT uh, had really become a discipline that is the study of malicious um, actors at the network and, and you know, code level malware hacking um, and the study of those actors and their TTPs, which is a whole further generation of evolution in the threat intel uh, industry. You know, what's, what's amazing is that interviewing a couple of folks that were on the other side um, of, of the of defense, it's amazing how quickly they adopted to 
technology. So just as we are kind of like looking at defending these organizations and so on, the other side of the house is constantly figuring out ways to profit from, you know, from emerging technology. So um, whether it's, uh, as you mentioned, Web 2.0 or 3.0 and finding new ways to, to, uh, to create fraudulent activity. Um, that cat and mouse has been around for such a long time. So um, let's advance from, from those early days. You know, where are, where are companies today, like in terms of uh, defending themselves uh, for, you know, for brand protection, um, you know, things have really changed and come, come a long way, uh, you know, since the early days. And it seems like the, the, the um, I guess the amplitude of the problem is really significantly increased, especially with COVID hitting and everything turning into digital overnight. You know, what was kind of your experience, uh, you know, going through that process as well? So it's a great question. Uh, in the most recent period, and I'll say the year or two before COVID, and then certainly it has evolved further during the uh, during the pandemic. You know, the first thing that I think uh, mature organizations have changed, and every organization should aspire to in terms of both defending its brand and defending its its own network or you know, uh, what I'll just call their own computing environment, whether that's cloud-based or hybrid uh, or on-prem, mix of all three. Um, the first thing that I think they, they should all, we should all aspire to as practitioners is that we should think about both security and criminal activity. And I, I distinguish between the two, um, let's say traditional network defense and also fraud at every stage of the technology lifecycle. Um, this may seem an off-topic anecdote, but it isn't. When I was in grad school, they took us to the GM factory in Baltimore where they made the Astro van. And um, we got to watch them, you know, put these Chevys together. And at the end of the assembly line, there was kind of a shunt, a lane where about one out of every 20 or 30 vans would get pushed off to the side. And when we asked about it, we were told, oh, that's the rework line, right? They find something wrong with the tolerances or the fit and finish or whatever, and they have to fix it before the van can roll out the factory door. We didn't know it at the time, but when we got back to class, the professor's point was, if you go to a, a Toyota factory or a Lexus factory or a Honda factory, you'll never see that. And when we asked why, he said, because they design the quality in at the front end. They build the things better on the line, and there is no rework at the end of the line. And not surprisingly, based on that anecdote, that GM closed that factory within about a year of the time that I visited it for being unprofitable and producing low quality products. The point of my story is this, whether it is SDLC or SSDLC, right? Whether it is uh, thinking about security and using tools to test the code in development and during deployment, whether it is thinking about your authentication and identity management for customers when they log into your website to do shopping or book a flight or change a hotel reservation. Um, and the, the metaphor my, uh, my CISO uses that I have adopted and I, I really love this is, you always have to think not just the security team, but the IT team, the infrastructure team, the identity management team, the software engineers and the QA engineers who test it. There is always a third player at the chessboard. It is not just the company and the customer. There is always, there should always be an assumed criminal element. 
And if you ask at every stage of the process, how could this be misused? If I take the word customer and substitute the word criminal, is my application secure? Is my authentication process robust enough, et cetera? So what's really changed from those early days in my mind is the creativity that you alluded to, the threat actor, the fraudster, the criminal, whether ideologically, financially, or geopolitically motivated, right, has an endless pool of creativity with the right motivation. And if the right motivation is political or strategic advantage or big piles of money, they're always going to be creative. There's always going to be a new thing. So every part of not just the security team, but every aspect of technology in a technology-based business needs to consider that third actor at every stage of the tool and software and product development lifecycle and in the day-to-day businesses, usual interactions with customers. You know, that's a, that's a very profound statement. Um, you know, how many organizations today you feel that have that interwoven into their security DNA? Because it's 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 what you just mentioned is is critical to like to view everything in a, in the eye of of the advers adversary, right? So look at like what can possibly go wrong, and the amount of complexities involved in a large enterprise. I mean, what are we talking about? Like just in terms of the sheer number of systems and processes, and you know intricate, uh, you know uh, uh, interrelationship between these processes. It's almost uh, endless. Um, so to, to look at it, it's just not trivial. Who who within the organization is responsible for that? And how do you bring a, a organization that is not thinking like that, that doesn't have that in their DNA, to take steps towards that type of thinking and type of maturity level? If I knew how to do that efficiently, <laughs> seamlessly, and in the blink of an eye, I would probably be at the pinnacle of the industry. Um, and by the way, Eric, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll mention to the viewers right now that this conversation is completely unscripted. And I, you know, I sometimes ask tough questions. They're doing a great job. So not everything has an answer. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I just, just throw it out there. No, I appreciate it. Um, so how do you kind of bring an organization along that journey? And, and where do most organizations stand today? Let me answer the latter uh question first, uh, how do you bring an organization along? I think it's a combination of two or three things. Um, the first is, right at the end of the day, for all the ones and zeros, this is a very human problem. Organizations are really nothing but groups of people aligned to common objectives. At least you hope they are. And, uh, you know, the same is true of the adversary. I say all the time, right, malware doesn't code itself and a box doesn't plug itself into the wall. At the end of the day, I'm not up against a piece of malware or a technique, you know, for establishing persistence on a network. I'm up against a person with a motivation and a goal and an objective. And so I think actually the first thing uh, to bring an organization along that journey, right, is not to go out and buy more Palo Alto firewalls or the latest whiz-bang traffic analyzer or endpoint solution. Yeah, insert it's, product X. <laughs> insert product X, right? The, the first step is to socialize the idea 
that there is no security through obscurity when you can automate scanning for vulnerabilities and flaws. There is no, we're not a target. Anyone who is connected to the internet is a target, right? There are tools like ZMAP that can scan the internet in under 24 hours, right? The entire internet in under 24 hours. You are a target just because you left a port open or you didn't patch something that only had a patch available last night. Everyone is a target. So if you begin by socializing the idea, and I'm not talking about the hackneyed, you know, security is everyone's job on a mouse pad, right? Um, but you can begin to socialize this notion, ideally, I think, through stories, not through training, not through finger waggling, but through stories. That's what people remember. So when you can begin to tell them anecdotes that they can tell their kids or their grandma or their friends at a cocktail party and they go, wow, that's like super cyber James Bond stuff. That's the first thing is to introduce the notion that this awareness that there is always a threat actor at the edge of the network. There is always a criminal seeking to gain advantage or stored value or cash out of our organization or social engineer you as an employee. And people think, oh, I work in the loading dock. Why would anybody want me? I guarantee you I can trace out a dozen scenarios why the guy in the loading dock would make an interesting target. So that's actually the first step is to get the organization through through lunch and learns, through informal you know, anecdotes at the, the baseball picnic in the spring, is to tell the stories that actually stick with people. Training doesn't, finger waggling doesn't, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Punitive actions really don't uh, accomplish that. But I found that if people as someone said to me at a, a recent company meeting, they're like, hey, I'd love to get an hour with you. I'm sure the stories you know you have from what you do are really cool, right? And this is someone who um, who does a very interesting part of you know our business. And I'm thinking, no, no, I wanna hear what this guy has to say, right? Because I think what he does is really interesting. And that is actually, um, I think, the first step in that journey because without buy-in and interest, you can give SSDLC lunch and learns all week long. It's not going to make the difference. Um, the other thing that I would say is in terms of technology, you know, I have worked with many, probably dozens of the hottest, leadingest, coolest tech vendors um, in the security space. And I've, I've worked with mostly Fortune 500s for 22 years now. They have the money to buy all the latest kit. What actually is more important than having 27 cool things is having the half dozen that do the absolute basic things well. It would shock people who are not in this industry, but doesn't shock those who are to say, and I'm not speaking of my current workplace, but over many large enterprises over many years, it is incredibly difficult for entirely legitimate reasons to answer questions like, what are all the things on my network? Are they up to date? Do they belong here? Should traffic be going to that destination? Is that user behaving in an anomalous way? Are we seeing volumetric or temporal or behavioral changes that are a departure from norm, right? That's, that's advanced stuff. And, that's and, that's the and, new stuff, right? But yeah, and what's on my network? 
And it's crazy. It sounds like almost <laughs> these these should be basics. I mean, we have this is 2022, and and we're talking about colonizing Mars, <laughs> and and yet you know some of these questions that you ask are seems to me like just as a you know practitioner it's almost trivial. Like I should be able to tell what's on my network, and I should be able to know what the tra normal traffic looks like. That's Maybe right. that's not the case. Departure from norm is hard, right? That's where all the <laughs> ML, I, I, we like to say, right? In marketing, it's AI. In practice, it's ML. But all this, uh, you know, departure from norm, uh, heuristic-driven statistical modeling, it's great stuff. But it is very noisy until you can get it tuned and teach it normal and baseline in your environment, right? No vendor is gonna know your network topology, your segmentation, the quirks of how your antique processes left over from 20 years ago, how those work. But that is still kind of cutting edge stuff, right? The the latest in ML driven network analysis yeah, the, and so on. The noise, Eric, and you probably back me up on that. The noise to signal ratio has always been the issue with like finding out what is the normal traffic because you know it's That's not right. it's very dynamic it changes all the time depending on it can be the time of the year depending on what type of business it is that you're in type of you're having a sale yep you're having a sale can completely change the profile of your traffic inbound and out um but what's interesting is that that is the kind of cool bleeding edge stuff uh, there are enterprises that i have worked with in in the 20 odd years i was on the on the vendor side I'll give you an example. Um, there were customers I worked with over the years, uh, obviously not to shame anybody, um, where there was a significant portion of their network where they discovered over time that they had missed 30% of their workstations having an endpoint agent. Like they just, what we used to call antivirus in those days, right? This was a long time ago, but like 30% of their workforce didn't have their standard endpoint package. And Did I hear? They didn't 30 even know that. Thirty percent. Yeah, that's thirty percent. That's that. Not, those numbers are uh, kind of insane, right? Because Cuckoo, it's like right? it's not like two percent. It's like thirty percent. How is it yeah. possible in actuality that something like that would happen? Well, and the question they would ask back to you is, "How am I supposed to know that? Right? What's on my network? Does it belong here? What is it running? Does it have a uh, an end? Or again, what back in those days was called antivirus? <laughs> is the antivirus actually being updated? These are the, the basic things, but uh, there was a great talk I, I listened to a number of years ago as a new CISO at a pharmaceutical company walked in and he said to the vendor that was paid seven or eight figures a year to run their global network, he said, how many devices are on my network? That's my first question. And they said, 110,000, big, right, big network. And he said, I will bet you you're wrong by at least 20%. Go away and actually find out. It took them two weeks to get the answer. And they came back with their tail between their legs and said 155,000. They were off by 45,000 devices. That's the kind of stuff that people wouldn't believe happen, except it does. And it does for very good reasons. So um, in terms of this is way harder to do well than it sounds like. So. You know, that, that was a, a global pharmaceutical company in 100 countries or something. But it's a it's a powerful story because for all the whiz bang venture funded, super cool things that say, you know, we can use, I don't know, retina scans to protect your dog food order or whatever is the supposedly hot, cool thing. I believe the industry should and, and many of them, many of the 
the exciting entrants in the industry are focusing on real foundational stuff. What's going in and out of my network? Where is it going and is that place safe? What devices are on my network? Are they patched? Do they belong here? Yeah, and it's, it sounds almost trivial, but it's not, especially when we're talking about large, larger enterprise. Um, in let's talk a bit. So, so you have like tremendous background in open source intelligence, and I love for people to listen to this and, and watch us to to get first to get a, a you know you're one of the best people to talk to about this. So, like, what is what is open source uh, open source intelligence? Uh, maybe a, a kind of a, a short primer about that, um, and then you know what are the advancement you've seen in in this particular space in terms of how uh, how enterprise leverages that to protect themselves. Uh, the first question, um, definitionally, right, open source intelligence is essentially the consumption and analysis of publicly available free or even commercial, uh, but publicly or generally available information to process uh, in order to generate actionable or meaningful output, right? A deliverable, uh, an intelligence product. And what is not, Eric, is that, again, the people hear that it's not, you know, hacking into closed system. This is just available this is the kind of the definition of what open is, right? It's That's openly correct. available. So you can just go in there, use whatever tools you have at your disposal to reach out legally, right? Is that correct? Absolutely correct. When I was an undergraduate, that consisted in my case of reading the bulletins from the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, for those old enough to remember Fibis. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were like reading Pravda and looking at the pictures in his vestia and trying to figure out if Brezhnev had the flu or whatever, right? Like that, that was open source intelligence when I was a Russian studies major. Um, today, uh, to, to address your second question, the quote, state of the art has advanced to an incredible degree. Uh, I don't have it verbatim, but there are numerous quotes from folks like the uh, the director of national intelligence, the DNI, uh, the uh, head of the NSA, the head of the Central Intelligence Agency. All of them will say in some form, uh, same with the, the Pentagon and the military brass, in some form, probably between 90 and 95% of everything they would want or need to know is available through unclassified means. Um, the problem is we have transitioned from an era where information is scarce and precious to having a surfeit of it. And so the problem has gone from, I need to collect information that is valuable to how in heaven's name do I sift what is valuable from the endless zettabytes of data that are available. And, and that is actually the, um, the signal to noise ratio you, you spoke of earlier was how I spent a good part of my career teaching machines how to winnow stuff down by five nines so that we could take a million things and put a, th a thousand or a hundred or 212 in front of an analyst out of that million. What's the state of the art today to your latter question? Um, there is incredible stuff out there now. And I will, I will illustrate by anecdote. Uh, there's a very, very well-respected organization called Bellingcat that interestingly made their bones in the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is uh, obviously being uh, part two right now into a much greater scale. This is a collective of open source researchers and analysts and collectors. Um, they recently published a tool. There was a researcher who was studying public domain uh, satellite data from a European satellite. And he was looking at, I don't know, weather or climate or something utterly unrelated. 
And then he kept getting interference in certain parts of the globe. So he tried to filter out the frequencies that were causing it um, while plotting the data on a map. He accidentally turned the, the dial in the wrong direction and pumped up those frequencies instead of tuning them out and essentially tripped over a way to discover and track the movements of military anti-aircraft radar, which you might guess in certain parts of the world is rather of the moment right now. Um, so the European satellite agency is publishing this data and he's turning it into an Intel That's amazing. Product. So you, dis you discover, it's almost like, a, it reminds you of the story of how they, they discovered artificial sweeteners. It's by, by doing something else, trying to, and then somebody tasted their fingers and it was like, you know, and I can't remember what process was. I think it was. He literally tripped over this by accident. <laughs> and, and now you can go on the website and you can see them showing a timeline of the buildup of military radars on the Belarus Ukraine border. And it was a complete accident. And um, it's incredible the data that is out there if you know or stumble across how to analyze it. And and uh, and then you mentioned briefly in passing, like the sheer volume of the data that we're talking about. And that's been growing exponentially, right? I mean, everyone has got a, a, a mobile device and people are taking these photos and audio and whatever and even location and all that is pumped into somewhere, whether it's social media or not. And do do organization today leverage that as well for you know to to figure things out, like to to find out their kind of the three sixty view of how are the organizations doing? Absolutely. I mean, uh, like most things, the uh, the sales and marketing folks, right, are always well, perhaps after the adult industry, <laughs> the sales and marketing folks are the second group to exploit every new technology as quickly <laughs> as possible for the purpose of garnering revenue, right? And so there, if you look at it at, a, at an ecosystem level, right, that is a, a natural consequence of the technological cycle of creative destruction. The folks who can make money by leveraging a new method or a new technology are going to blaze the trail. So if you want to look to the types of data and the ways it can potentially be used, uh, look to the sales and marketing folks, right? They they figured out how to, I don't know, you know, send coupons to you for exactly the things you buy via tracking cookies that go from your phone to your web browser, to your laptop, to your tablet, to your kid's tablet, right? And, and know exactly when to sell you that next box of Pampers, right? Um, so when you look at how business Gen looks to seeks to generate revenue from whether it's mobile data or social data, um, whether they seek to aggregate, I don't know, property records, vehicle movements, easy pass payments, right? Everything is a means to potentially better understand the customer. And if you look at what the sales and marketing and B2B marketing in particular are doing to leverage data, you will see the leading edge of things that will come into the open source intelligence space. And so I would love to dive into some, maybe some stories you have. And as you mentioned, uh, I think people know that you have a lot of stories, so they, <laughs> they do seek those. Um, in, in terms of, of uh, protecting yourself, uh, you know, personally, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of people will say, well, I have nothing to hide. <laughs> and and therefore, you know, I'm okay with you know giving out my my information. What what's your take on that in terms of like the privacy privacy concerns? Oh, there are a lot of people out there who will not like this answer. Um, you can Google endless lists of things you can do to increase and protect your privacy online, and 
Yes, you can do them. I even recommend some of them. Uh, the truth is that short of becoming a, a true Luddite at this point, um, you will be and are being tracked, sliced, diced, and analyzed in more ways than you can control. I say, oh, you know, reject all cookies in your web browser and use DuckDuckGo instead of Google. That's great, right? Every time you go shopping, every time you swipe a credit card, every time you drive works. through a toll booth. Right. Right. Exactly. Nothing um, works. As soon as you disable your cookies, it's almost like they're just you, your ability to even do any type of commerce online is getting diminished exponentially, right? That's right. They, they, right? The, <laughs> the revenue seeking industries, which is all of them, <laughs> um, and the, the knowledge or insight seeking industries, which can include, you know, non commercial like government entities, domestic and foreign, right? Um, I mean, if you think about uh, taking your cell phone, getting in your car, in my case, driving around the DC beltway and down the Dulles toll road to walk into an office, going to the cafe, buying lunch and stopping at the, uh, the supermarket on the way home for a chicken and a six pack of beer, right? My phone, my credit cards, uh, my, my fob, my badge for the building and office badging systems, my frequent shopper card and the uh, toll tag, as well as the license plates on my car have all been added to a database between nine and six that day. And that's just a handful of simple examples. Privacy is largely in a, in a modern Western society. Privacy is largely a thing of the past. Well, you know, I think that- <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you just tell it like it is. Um, you know, I guess we have to, this is part of the kind of knowledge-based economy, right? We, we have to live, you know, with these, the, um, the uh, I guess, the end result of it all that, uh, uh, you know, knowledge or data is a new oil and, and companies are mining it. You know, there's just, uh, there's no two ways about it. And as, as is often repeated, right, if the service or product you're getting is free, you are the product, right? And, and we all voluntarily, you know, slowly over time have given up all of the barriers to that. The first time I was in grad school and the, the Safeway down the street from Georgetown offered me this little plastic card that would get me a discount on a roll of paper towels if I swiped it. And I looked at that card, this was 1990 something, and I thought, that is the tip of the spear. That is, that right there is the beginning of the end of any kind of privacy unless you are willing to travel unpaved back roads right, in a car with no license plates and old enough not to have computer chips in it and build a cabin in the woods. And uh, we have made that, every one of us has made that explicit exchange of convenience and speed and knowledge and all the things and better health, all the things that technology, the internet and otherwise have brought us that would be unimaginable even a generation ago. What you give up is any form of real privacy. Yeah, and, and I think things are accelerating as soon as we start having, you know, wearables and, you know, uh, <laughs> the car is starting to, to track, you know, who you are. Chips in your brain. and Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's yeah. all there. Uh, so tell me, since you have like such an amazing experience working with these large enterprise and have experienced firsthand the kind of the evolution of, of, um, of security around open source intelligence and around risk in, in general, what would you recommend? And you know, the, our economy is, is largely based on uh, you know small to medium-sized businesses who do not have that luxury 
uh, to run a team with with all those bells and whistles just you mentioned, what would you recommend to, in terms of um, maybe some basic things they can do to to better protect themselves and be more aware of of their kind of their you know cybersecurity surroundings? If if you speak, yeah, I appreciate the question. A um, couple of thoughts there, and and. As a quick aside to anyone who's listening, uh, even though there are firms that are doing it, the the need versus the supply, the demand versus the supply is wildly out of balance. If you can figure out ways to serve the SMB market cost effectively in some of the ways I'm about to talk about, um, I think just geographically, serve your town, serve your local borough, serve your local city. Uh, it's a nearly bottomless market because as you said, David, right, for all of the visibility of the fortune thousand enterprises right the american economy is actually built on companies of 100 people and less every one of whom faces the same cybersecurity risks and challenges as the big guys without the resources to defend themselves right. as well and so and more sorry, so now no no and you're 100 and i'll just you know echo that more so because there are base you know knowledge-based economy right so you're manufacturing tires in some you know some uh, you know small town usa the process of which you manufacture for the past 25 years is, has a high value associated to, to some others, right? It could be nation state or otherwise. That's right. So, so even though you're like, you have one IT person at best who has also happened to do some other stuff, <laughs> your, your odds of protecting yourself without any, like, any kind of defense mechanism or software or whatever, it's, it's very slim. You have to, you know, maybe if you, there's some insight you can provide to how they can protect themselves, that'd be great. Yeah, um, I think there are three or four very basic things, but basic doesn't mean remedial, right? It just means you, you gotta do the basics, right? Um, if you wanna make it to the final four, you gotta shoot a thousand free throws a week, right? You gotta do the basics. Um, so apologies for some of these being obvious to many. Uh, the first is, if you don't have a robust IT management uh, organization or infrastructure in the company, rely on the providers to do it for you. So for example, if there is not an operationally disruptive reason not to, everything should be automatically updated, right? Don't dismiss the alerts that say, you really need to update your iPad, your Windows, just let the machines be updated by Apple, by Microsoft, et cetera. Um, one of the biggest uh, things I've seen growth in this year is zero day exploits of browsers. All you have to do to patch any modern browser is close it and restart it. Um, so keeping software up to date, if you have operationally important software beyond the, you know, the desktop Mac or Windows, if you use computer controlled uh, manufacturing or, or design or any kind of a uh, machines that contribute directly to the products you produce, um, keep them absolutely patched. Uh, adopt the concept of least privilege, even in a small company. People who do not need access to certain information or certain parts of the network or certain folders or certain devices should not have it. Not because your employees are not trustworthy, but because if their device is compromised through no fault of their own, you don't want the that third player at the table, that adversary who is now mimicking or playing the part of your employee to have access they, to things they shouldn't get to. So adopt least privilege. 
um, control as much as you can who has access to what. If you have a complex network, try within the, the realm of your budget and, and bandwidth to segment it um, so that literally you have to you have to be allowed into a separate part of the house, right? You can go in the dining room and the living room, but the kitchen is off limits if you're not the cook, right? Um, and probably the single most cost-effective thing you can do is choose a really good endpoint security uh, solution, some of which are free to consumers and small enterprises. Um, I don't remember exactly what the cost ranges are, but I think ESET, Avast, uh, there are folks out there who offer stuff for the consumer and the small business that is either free or you know dollars per endpoint per year. If there was one thing you could do, um, it's keep, keep your endpoints up to date, uh, keep your operational um, uh, endpoints protected with a, a cheap or free, but good off the shelf. Again, what we used to call antivirus <laughs> and and it's amazing that some of it is again it's you mentioned it but it's not trivial so example like just uh closing and opening a browser you know how many people do you know that are leaving their um browsers always on yep. by default and they when they leave the office it's always on maybe they they maybe they lock the, the you know lock the machine but everything's still on and they have the browser on for weeks and not months on end Yep. Just to the uh, fact they don't want to minimize and close all the tabs. And so even as something as that, as simple as that, to like close it and open it at least once a week is has absolutely. value. Um, same with rebooting your machine, right? If you have the defaults uh, for Windows or Mac to, you know, to update when there is a, an update or patch available. Uh, good practice would be every Sunday night or every Friday night, whenever you kind of finish out your week from a work perspective, shut your machine down, force it to restart Grab the updates if there are any. That includes both the OS and the browsers. This is um, probably the simplest thing, technologically speaking. The other thing is uh, purely cognitive. Um, I'm in on the unhappy position. I have um, my mother is in her 80s, and uh, twice in six weeks, you know, I got a phone call that said something like, you know, the nice man in India who called me about my Macintosh, and I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> um, be circumspect, right? Uh, the old New Yorker cartoon, right? From the early days of the web, right? On the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Um, if, you don't, if you don't know the person you're talking to, if you don't recognize their voice as someone you know, even if it comes from, you know, Jane's email address and you've named Jane for 20 years, if there's a request you don't understand, if there's a request that seems too personal, if there's a request for information that seems too sensitive, delete it or confirm it out of band, right? If you get an email from your sister and she says, hey, I need your bank account information, call her on the phone, right? Nothing on the, do not assume that anything on the internet or by text is what it claims to be. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. And it seems like, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, as simple as having common sense, you know? Just to yeah. you know what they one, say about common sense, right? What it's, is it? it's rather uncommon. <laughs> <laughs> well, just asking one more question, as you mentioned, like who does you know, like just to be suspicious. Um, you know, I feel like we we, we need to do at least uh, one more session. This uh, you know, I can talk to you about the geopolitical you know you know things that are happening right now, and there's just so much we haven't we have yet to uncover. So maybe we'll do a, a session B of it uh, of this one. But in the meantime. 
Uh, what's the easiest way for people to to reach out to you for you know for advice, mentorship, uh, just just getting in touch? What's the easiest way? Uh, I'd say LinkedIn. Uh, I'll of course be circumspect about every invitation and <laughs> hyperlink that gets sent to me on LinkedIn, um, but it's already public. Uh, it's an easy way to find me. You, you've seen my ugly mug, so you'll know which Eric Olson it is. Pretty simple. Um, and the reason that I say that is, like most people, I am actually. Uh, so awash in email, automated, unsolicited, and otherwise, right? That um, if it, you know, if it's not from a boss or a teammate, uh, someone important in my day-to-day work, it often goes to the back of the line. But um, uh, LinkedIn is something because it requires essentially a, a permission to connect, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, that's probably the easiest way to find me and and uh, allow me to curate. Uh, getting back to people. I had somebody ask me if I'm a bot the other day and somebody said, <laughs> no. No, I'm just really productive. <laughs> <laughs> um, super. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been a real pleasure. Um, you know, unbelievable journey. And uh, again, we'll we'll do uh, probably session B of it where we come in and dive into your uh, Russian uh, geopolitical insight expertise uh, since it's so so much relevant uh, these days. And uh, But until then, thank you very much for joining and thanks all for joining today. Stay safe uh, online as well as offline. Thanks so much for having me, David. Good to see you. Take care.